Thanks for listening to Reimagining the Internet from the Institute for Digital Public Infrastructure at UMass Amherst. We're hosting an ongoing discussion with researchers, activists, academics, techies, and journalists about what's wrong with the internet and how we might fix it. I'm your host, Ethan Zuckerman. Hey, everybody. This is Ethan Zuckerman from the Institute for Digital Public Infrastructure. I'm back with this ongoing conversation series on imagining the internet. I'm thrilled to have with us today Sophia Noble, who is Associate Professor of UCLA in the Department of Information Studies. She's also the co-director of the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry. Uh, I know her and you may know her uh, through her really excellent book, Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. She's really one of the most thoughtful people out there. Uh, about how the systems that we use uh, in social media can have indirect or direct harms on us uh, in terms of racism and discrimination. Uh, and she's someone that I'm really looking to for inspiration in terms of sort of imagining different futures. So, Sophia, thanks for being with us. And I'm going to ask you the question I ask everyone, which is what's wrong with social media right now and, and what should we be doing to fix it? Well. Thank you, Ethan, for that lovely introduction. And, uh, you know, I think that one of the biggest problems with social media is that uh, we have the speed and scale that uh, allows for some of the most harmful kinds of uh, propaganda, disinformation, discriminatory uh uh, actions, let's say, in advertising uh, to proliferate. We also have a direct channel to consumers for the distribution of all kinds of, let's say, products and goods that might be harmful, that might be unregulated, um, that have no oversight, right? Uh, there's so many ways in which the speed and scale of the current large social media monopolies um, work that I think we have to assess the incredible damage and reconsider whether this is a, a model or a, a part of the media system that we really want. I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the damage and how we sort of assess it and understand it. Um, Early on in, in your work that led up to algorithms of oppression, you did really memorable research about how totally innocuous searches on Google, um, searching for black girls, for instance, uh, had a very high chance of leading towards pornography, uh, whereas searching for white girls did not. Um, Google has subsequently changed things. You'll get black girls code when you, when you search for black girls now. But... Um, for quite some time, when you were using Google uh, to search for something like black girls, you were getting uh, this highly sexualized content. What's the harm? Explain to, to us um, how that constitutes a harm, how that affects us as users of these tools and members of society. Well, we know from other forms of media pre-internet, for example, uh, television and film, uh, those industries that when you circulate, um, you know, exploitive and stereotypical kinds of information um, or entertainment about 
communities, especially communities that are oppressed in our societies around the world, that it actually contributes to the dehumanization of those people. And so one of the reasons why I, in that early study, was looking at what happens when you look for girls of color. And I looked at Asian girls, Latino girls, you know, a lot of different kinds of girls and women, and found that over and over women and girls were sexually objectified in search. Now, the challenge here is that the way people relate to search is that it is kind of like a you know, a a public library. Some people think of it in that way. They think of it as a fact checker. They think of it as kind of the first go-to to find out something about anything. There's an implication of objectivity. There is an implication. There's not only an implication of objectivity, but when, um, when Google's own kind of moniker is organizing the, all the world's knowledge, then that act of organizing makes us think that there is some type of credibility or, or some veracity, right, in the process of, of sorting through and indexing all of this uh, content on the web. So I think it's really important as the public is engaging with these technologies that they understand that they're actually advertising platforms. And of course, in the case of um, the highly sexualized content, it's really to do with the fact that the porn industry and other industries like it have more money than children and girls and even women. And so I think we have to ask ourselves um, if this idea that those who can buy their way to the top can control certain narratives in our society. And that really is what I was trying to point to more than anything in the book is that we have a lot at stake when we leave our information and knowledge landscape to these kinds of advertising companies that really are not invested in um, uh, truth. Right. So in, in the case of search engines, the concern in many ways is we have something which is a, a proxy for truth, maybe a stand-in for truth. It's an extremely imperfect stand-in. But when you really unpack it, what it is is a marketplace. And if it is more advantageous for porn companies to be advertising on black girls or Asian girls than it is for an NGO or uh, for a women's rights organization, um, then there's the strong possibility that we're going to end up encountering that ad content. How does this play out in the social media spaces? And, and why does that relationship between advertising, the, the market associated with it, and the content that spreads on social media, why is that of, of such primary concern for you? Well, one of the things, Ethan, you and I both have been on the internet for a very long time. And I'll tell you, we remember the kind of pre-advertising days. And of course, the many models that came about to try to monetize people's activity and access to entertainment and ideas and all kinds of things on the web. So um, first of all, we have this kind of publicly built infrastructure that was funded by taxpayers right, in the kind of early internet days, then the the move to commercialize this space. And what it means is that the largest, most moneyed um, actors in the world, and by that I mean organizations, businesses, governments, really are able to control the kinds of um, information that we come into contact with. Now, that might be great, um, you know, on some levels, I think it's really helpful. I'd love to see, for example, the uni- the universities and the public libraries 
uh, of the United States have a really big kind of visible space for librarians and other kinds of information professionals, for example, to help curate and help us navigate through. In fact, you remember the early web. I mean, people thought of it as kind of a virtual library. Um, so, you know, what we have, though, instead is this um, profit imperative where return on shareholder um, uh, uh, investment is really the most important imperative in the social media and kind of big tech landscape. And what that means is um, if people are harmed and when you were talking about, let's say, a little bit of propaganda, uh, racist disinformation, hate speech, um, all kinds of things like that, you know, it, only a little bit can grow to impact millions of people very quickly. And, you know, that seems to be the collateral damage that um, big tech is willing to pay. You know, they're willing to pay very uh, minor fines uh, when they're, for example, breaking the law um, or they're found in, uh, in, in violation of civil rights law. Uh, the, the penalties are pretty low. I mean, a kind of pocket change. So uh, in, in relationship to the kind of return, well, what that means then is the most vulnerable people um, in our society are the people who pay the highest cost and have the least amount of protection. And I think that's something that it just, it's, it's unsustainable. And of course, every day um, we just saw, um, you know, in the last uh, few hours, Jacob Blake being shot in the back, um, you know, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, there's so many people we could name. And um, part of the, I think, um, way in which African Americans in the United States, for example, are dehumanized through so much um, kind of vicious, um, incorrect and um, stereotypical kinds of information that moves through these social media platforms really has a, a cost. Um, it's not just the people that are harmed, but it's all of us who are witnesses to the harm and have the secondary trauma associated with the harm. And I think we have to think about um, how we are going to reimagine the kind of societies we want and what role these technologies play in bringing that forward. I, I think we should dig in a little bit to the situation with Jacob Blake because it has some very direct situations where, where we might be able to trace harm back to social media. So um, three days ago, uh, Jacob Blake uh, was shot in the back in Kenosha, Wisconsin by Kenosha police. He had been trying to break up a fight. Um, he'd been entering his own vehicle and he was shot seven times in the back. Um, as we're recording this, his family's reporting that he's alive but paralyzed below the waist. There have now been nights of protests in Kenosha. And last night, um, things got very strange where not only did you have the police attacking protesters with tear gas, but there was a group of what appear to be Boogaloo boys um, who were armed um, people claiming to protect businesses in the Kenosha area. And what appears to have happened is that one of those people who may be a minor uh, shot a number of protesters and killed at least one of them. So we're now at this situation where we're having peaceful protests as the result of incidents that are being documented and the documentation is being spread on social media, we now have people coming to these protests um, to protect or to counter protest armed uh, 
And this is a movement that seems to come entirely out of social media. Boogaloo is a reference to this idea that we'll have Civil War II electric Boogaloo and you have um, white ethno-nationalists as well as a, a lot of just anti-government forces who seem to be egging this on. Is this the time that we just shut down Facebook and Reddit and Twitter? What what do we do at this point, Sophia? These, these, these um, tools that you correctly identify seem to be causing a great deal of harm this really now seems to be turning into matters of life and death. It is. And I'll tell you that um, if there were any other uh, media sector that was allowing for the organization of armed militias to come out and kill Americans, let's just keep it in the U.S. context for a moment, um, those those uh, radio stations would be raided by the FBI. There would be uh, potentially a crackdown. Certainly, we know that for civil rights organizations in the history of the United States, especially the more recent history of the last 50 years, whether it's the American Indian Movement, the uh, Civil Rights Movement, uh, Puerto Rican Independence Movement, um, the anti-war left, in Vietnam, uh, protesting the Vietnam um, War, we know that um, if there were uh, attempts and when there were attempts to organize people, for example, to stand up for civil and human rights, that those that the, the U.S. government, in fact, raided those um, organizations and um, facilitated the shutdown of um, movements. So it's interesting to me to see right-wing, far-right extremist fascist, white nationalist, um, neo-Nazi, these are not all interchangeable uh, terms, but these types of organizations are allowed to not only, uh, you know, march up and down our streets with semi-automatic weapons and threaten and also kill um, uh, peaceful protesters exercising their constitutional rights, but we also have companies that facilitate their ability to communicate, gather, and organize. And of course, I'm talking about Facebook, but also there are others. So I find this incredibly disingenuous. Um, and I think that one of the reasons why these large social media companies has, have escaped accountability is because they have deluded the public and public officials into thinking that they are simply neutral tools and that they are not responsible in any way for the content that moves through their uh, their systems. And of course, that's like saying um, that, you know, the cable television industry isn't responsible for the content uh, that they broadcast because, you know, they're just the cables underground. I mean, that's just a ludicrous proposition. And I think we're going to have to um, really revisit the way in which these companies are framed. It's not a fait accompli that they are here to stay either. You know, let's remember other technologies. If we pull back and take a longer view, we might remember that there are um, there are different kinds of industries and products and services that have come to market and that have been based on different kinds of economic arrangements that are no longer with us because we decided that they must be abolished or that they were too harmful or that the cost was too high or they were regulated in a way that really discouraged their kind of profiteering uh, through exploitation. And I think that we might need to take some of those lenses to some of the existent technology too. Before we get into abolition, because I, I do want to think about that with you because I think it's one of the most provocative ideas that you're putting forward and uh, one of the most important. Um, 
I do want to push back slightly and say that, that there's different models of infrastructure. Um, cable TV carries Fox News even when it's crazy. Um, and if it ends up carrying OANN uh, rather than carrying Al Jazeera America, those are very conscious content choices. I think a lot of these tools would like to argue that they're closer to a common carrier. It's closer to a telephone call or uh, a private letter where they're not going to intervene and deal with the content. You obviously think that they lean closer to the cable system making the programming choices than to the common carrier. How do we sort of understand that in the case of something like, like Twitter? Um, to what extent is, is it making uh, those choices that are closer to cable TV and, and less like telephone or, or private letters? Well, you know, it's difficult to make a telephone call to 10 million people in 48 hours. So I find that to be a, a limited way of thinking about it. I understand it kind of from the early ISP, you know, dial-up model and, and of connectivity. And But I think that our infrastructures have also evolved significantly. Now we're talking about broadcast capabilities that are happening in something like Twitter or in Facebook or other types of platforms, YouTube. Um, so that seems to be, um, I, I think the common carrier model, is, uh, we've, we've far eclipsed that let's say, uh, you know, maybe by 25 years at least. Um, now we're into a situation where you can uh, one to many, one to millions of people broadcast content. And, you know, uh, networks and uh, other kinds of broadcasting um, uh, industries have to think about um, their responsibility now, they have different kinds of oversight, let's say, by the Federal Communications Commission. I think in the case of social media and big tech broadly, that we might be thinking uh, uh, at looking at the Federal Trade Commission. And this is one of the things that I argue in the book is that there's been so much focus, I think, on net neutrality in the FCC, it, again, in that kind of early model, early paradigm. But now we're talking about direct consumer harm. And, uh, and I think that we need to move, we could even go further than in the FTC, and we should say, should the Department of Justice be looking at the kinds of activities that happen in these spaces and places? And I think that um, we've really, that the tech industries had such a powerful lobby and a powerful hold on our imaginary about what they are. Uh, and that is, um, that's dangerous. And uh, it doesn't mean that necessarily we want to do away with every dimension but i think that we are not properly naming what these technologies are lends to the confusion and if we could frame them better we might be able to better figure out what they are and what they should be responsible for right a, a debate like section 230 immunity feels very very different when we're talking about someone posting a web page for three or four people versus someone with YouTube channels that are reaching millions of people. And somewhere in there, there, there has to be a distinction between what feels like that one-on-one -on -one private communication and what feels more like broadcast. Um, you've talked a little bit about the notion of something parallel to uh, a, a consumer finance protection bureau, some of the work that Elizabeth Warren and others have done. Can, can I get you to, to flesh that out a little bit? Sure. I mean, I think this is a moment where the kind of with the opening of the, uh, you know, uh, policy 
community thinking differently um, and more rigorously. I think this is a time for scholars who really understand these systems to come forward with ideas. So of course, you know, I have many different ideas. I'm not sure that any of them will be taken up, but I certainly have talked with you about things like a consumer technology protection board, right? Um, modeling uh, off of what the banking and finance industry did to really harm millions of Americans through their mortgage schemes and frauds. Um, uh, they're kind of betting against Americans and betting on their failures. And, um, you know, one of the greatest, I think, um, things we want to remember about the mortgage crisis, which triggered Elizabeth Warren starting the Consumer Finance Protection Board, and uh, Rohit Chopra, who's our commissioner on the Federal Trade Commission, also worked uh, closely on that, is that we had um, the largest, for example, wipeout of Black wealth in the history of the United States. You know, imagine all the gains yeah. since emancipation, all of the gains in terms of wealth building, effectively wiped out uh, by Wall Street with uh, the gamification, which quite frankly was facilitated by new predictive algorithmic modeling that was not previously possible. So, you know, when we think about the implications of that, I think we have to get very serious about what kinds of harms and what kinds of remedies. Now, one of the, the I think, failures of the Consumer Finance Protection Board is it really didn't provide enough remedies to individuals. And so I knew many people, for example, who lost their homes. This is anecdotal, but I'll just say they, you know, okay, they reported Bank of America or they reported Wells Fargo. But, you know, in the end, it was the industry that um, got the bailout, not the homeowners themselves. They were never in a position to repurchase. And those same speculators went in and then snapped up all those properties for pennies on the dollar. Uh, if we think that's not connected to things like the affordable housing crisis right now, then, you know, we need to dial into cities like Los Angeles, where I live, and New York, and other Chicago, other major cities, where people just will never be able to own homes again. So I think we've got to think about um, models that provide remedies to the public for the harms that they experience. And also that maybe where damages might actually have to be part of uh, the model too. So that if you harm, you are responsible uh, in terms of damages in the way that, um, you know, uh, the American models of uh, thinking through harm and protections through the legal system have really not um, often fallen on the side of victims, but rather on the side of perpetrators and large organizations and powerful people. You and I are both very much engaged in this question of imagining different possible futures. And one of the things that um, you've said that, that has really stuck with me is this idea that we can change economic models. You've made the argument that um, the U.S. changed one of civilization's greatest injustices, an economic model based on the enslavement of people based on their ethnicity. Um, and a United States that was in many ways literally inconceivable without the institution of slavery became a United States that is trying to figure itself out post that institution changes on that scale have happened, need to happen, makes it possible to sort of imagine um, what a social media or an internet past surveillance advertising looks like. T talk to us about what, what that idea of abolition means in the social media space 
space and, and what sort of space you might imagine uh, if we abolish some of these models that we're currently thinking about. Yeah, Ethan, you know, I appreciate you bringing that in because I have been talking for some time now about the, um, I, I guess, you know, in situating my own uh, stay in the matter, if I have a say, uh, I really do, you know, imagine myself as a more of a tech abolitionist probably than anything because, um, you know, when I say that, what I'm invoking, for example, is the institution of slavery and enslavement. And of course, you know, one of the reasons why we pull back and we look at history is because we understand that there were arguments to be made that the U.S. economy could not function without a slave economy. And, um, and it was only a handful of people who were abolitionists who argued about the ethical and moral imperative that uh, was at stake for the country when it built its society on the notion that there had to be a permanent disposable um, underclass of people who had no rights and had no say over their lives. And, you know, this, the, the effects of that are still with us. So it's not like that was hundreds of years ago. I mean, we are still living. People, my generation, I'm Generation X, our grandparents, many of our grandparents were sharecroppers. They were just one generation out of enslavement in terms of its, its, uh, its real practice um, and entrenchment. So I think that... Um, when you know when we think about taking on something like big cotton or i'll fast forward to another um you know industry we thought was infallible which is the big tobacco um you know there was a a time when people could not imagine not having big tobacco as so prominent a a, a a marker in our society as smoking was. Um, you know, when I tell my students, for example, that probably the doctor who delivered me had a cigarette hanging out of his mouth while he was, you know, while my, my mom probably chain smoked right after she gave birth. Um, you know, people can't imagine that now, young people, but th that tells you so much. And big tobacco is also really interesting because in many ways it's parallel uh, to pouring millions and millions of dollars into research that was favorable to its own interests. It had powerful marketing and advertising that convinced people that they needed it and they wanted it. It had huge secondary effects on people who didn't even choose and want to participate. Um, and uh, it created a public health crisis that disproportionately impacted poor people and poor people of color. It was predatory. So I think that's also a model that we can look at um, another industry and say, well, what happened there? Well, what we know happened was class action lawsuits. We know that the tobacco industry had to pay basically restoration back to the public. It had to put billions of dollars that were firewalled off from their ability to influence that went into research that helped the public understand the harms. Now, it doesn't mean that people can't smoke. But it does mean that people understand what they're doing now when they're smoking. And I think we need a similar kind of movement around big tech, where people at least have the opportunity to understand what they're doing. And it's not just a fait accompli, that it's ubiquitous and it's everywhere, even if it causes all of these various kinds of attendant harms. So, so if I'm hearing right, the model is in some ways sort of a post-tobacco model, a tobacco settlement model. There's a documentation of the harms. There is a holding big tech responsible. There's a generation of pools of funds that are used for education. 
Um, what, what, do we, what do we build in its place? Um, if we know that um, what we built now is dangerous and exploitative, um, but we also know that social media is unlikely to dissolve, um, what, is, what is the post-big tobacco, the, the post-big data social media look like? Well, I don't think it's uh, a foregone for conclusion that social media is here to stay, all right? And the reason why I say that is because um, I think, you know, we've thought of other kinds of media that we thought were here to stay that really changed a lot with, with other opportunities or other possibilities that came along. So, you know, one of the challenges here is that if social media continues on its same track, it's really going to devolve into such a cesspool. People are not going to want to be there. They're not going to want to participate. I mean, we already see that the makers, one of the, the, the cautionary tales, this is why I love being a researcher because I feel like we, we spend our lives trying to see and understand and then communicate out to the public what's happening. One of the things that I find interesting is that the makers, for example, of these technologies have their own nannies sign agreements that they cannot allow their own children to participate with these technologies, that they can't post their photos to Instagram, you know, that they can't be on devices when they're with their children. So they already know themselves about the addictive qualities of these technologies and about what it means to be um, classified and documented and cataloged into these systems from birth and how harmful and what the consequences long-term might be. So I think we're going to see, for example, the first generation soon of children who are adults who try to run for office, who try to become teachers, who try to become social workers, who try to do all kinds of things and who will be damaged, in fact, or barred or precluded from doing some of those things because of this long history of their uh, lives lived on social media. So I want to offer that, you know, we might through time see that this did not serve us, that it actually undermined uh, participation in public life, uh, participation in education and employment opportunities. We're already seeing these kinds of things emerge um, uh, and we're documenting these things. And I uh, and so I say it, it, it isn't a fait accompli that these things will be here forever. And maybe, maybe we don't need industrial scale technology. Maybe we will go like the, uh, you know, I'd look metaphorically always to other kinds of um, movements maybe like the response to the industrial level um, food industry and farming industry, we will have a slow food or a slow tech movement. Maybe we will find that an organic, slow, localized kind of connectivity um, that doesn't demand a 24 by seven type of connectivity and drive an addictive uh, quality of life might be more enjoyable. I mean, we have no idea what's possible and plausible, but I think it's you know incumbent upon us to try to imagine and try to dream about the kind of lives and societies and communities we want to live in. And I, I, that's what I, I um, enjoy thinking about and trying to offer into the, into the conversation. Reimagining the Internet is hosted by me, Ethan Zuckerman, and produced by Mike Sugarman, who also composed our theme song, Visit publicinfrastructure.org for more information about the launch of our research center at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst in spring 2021. And please subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast.